This morning we are going to look particularly at Mark chapter 10 and verses 17 to 27, the account of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. We know he was a young man because Matthew, in his account of this in Matthew 19, tells us that he was uh, young. And we know from what both Mark and Luke says that he was influential and rich. He's called a certain ruler in Luke, and here uh, it's quite clear that he's a man who has many possessions. So I want to first look at this encounter from the perspective of how near to salvation this young man seemed to be. Well, we perhaps wouldn't think of it like this, but certainly in the days of Jesus and in certain parts of Christendom today, wrongly, it would have been thought that the mere fact that he was rich and influential showed that he was near to God, that he was near salvation. Many then, as now, believed that it was a sure mark of God's approval that he was prosperous. Well, we know straight away from this passage that our circumstances are absolutely no guide as to the state of our soul. Yes, indeed, he was prosperous, but he went away sad from what Jesus said. He went away from Jesus Christ, and we don't know whether he ever came back to Christ. We cannot assume He did. I'm not saying he didn't, we just don't know. And as Jesus himself draws uh, the lesson for his disciples out of this encounter that it is a hard thing, an impossible thing for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but then he goes on to qualify that saying, it's impossible for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he then goes on to say that many that a first shall be last, and the last first. In other words, our circumstances, materially speaking, and in other ways to do with what this world would count as success, is absolutely no guide to a person's state before God. Uh, We have the account in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus covered with sores, a beggar, and yet a child of God, the rich man was not a child of God and went to hell when he died. It is a warning to us who are rich in this part of the world, rich compared to so many inhabitants of the world, even if we don't think we're very rich, but we are rich, that that is no guide to the state of our soul. You can have a very fat financial portfolio, but a very lean soul. So, This man was not as near to salvation as many would think by his circumstances. Secondly, he seemed near salvation because he was very devout. There's no question that his outward behavior was one of great devoutness, great piety. He came running to Jesus. There was an eagerness there, an eagerness that is markedly absent in our own society in terms of people coming into the presence of Christ. But this man wasn't in that category. He was eager. He kneeled to Christ. He had no hesitation in showing him deep respect. We don't know exactly what he meant by the kneeling. It seems that he didn't understand that Jesus 
is the Son of God. The question in verse 18, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God, is not uh, Jesus denying that he is good. It's not Jesus denying that he is God. It's rather him eliciting faith from this man. It's encouraging him to go the whole way, as it were. You call me good? Well, just think about it. What are you implying about me there? But whether or not he understood, he probably didn't fully, he certainly showed deep respect for Christ. And as his answer shows, as Jesus spells out the commandments to him, do not commit adultery, do not kill, and so on, he certainly shows that he's a very moral man. He answered and said unto Christ, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now, we know that the Pharisees in the Gospels are very moral people, but we sense uh, both by their behavior and their attacks on Jesus and also by what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees that along with their morality, there went an arrogance. It was a rather um, repulsive kind of Morality, whereas we, we don't get this here from this young man. He really did observe, at least outwardly speaking, these commandments. He did honor his parents. He didn't practice financial fraud. He didn't lie and steal and kill and so on. So he was a, a devout man. And yet, again, we have to say he went away from Christ. And then thirdly, it seems he was spiritually awakened. He wanted, there was a question on his mind, which again is not on the mind of many people in our society today. Would that it were, but it was very much on his mind. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He was concerned about going to heaven. He was concerned that he should please God. There was a desire there. And whatever he understood about Christ, he certainly had a high view of him because he calls him good master. He's not like the Pharisees who perhaps deep down knew that Jesus was a good teacher and a good man, but they, they wouldn't admit it. Uh, and They were full of blasphemy and hatred, but this man wasn't in that category. It seems he, he did really respect Jesus. And he was willing to listen to the teaching of Jesus. As Jesus explained, what about the commandments? Have you kept these? And whatever the outcome of the encounter, he was very moved by it. Because he didn't just say, oh well, you can't win them all. And off he goes. He's sad at that saying. He's grieved. Can you, just, can you not picture this man? He's devout. He's gifted. He has a spiritual desires, a spiritual awakening. And I dare say that in many churches, he would have been made a member with little trouble. And yet we know from the account that he was not saved. He went away grieved. The, what Jesus had to say to him challenged him right at the roots. And although he seemed near to salvation, he wasn't. We do have to remember that God alone sees the heart and God sees your heart and my heart and he knows if, well he knows how far our devotion and our spiritual 
desires and our spiritual concerns and maybe our emotional responses are taking us. He knows how deep they go. We think of the parable of the sower and the seed uh, and the various grounds. And remember that some of the grounds in that parable are enough, enough soil to give at least an initial growth to the seed, to the seedling. There was a shallow soil, or there was soil infested with weed seeds, so that other things sprang up, but there was initially growth. But then only one of the soils was of sufficient depth and quality for the seedling to really grow and really bring forth much fruit. God alone knows the heart, and he knows your heart and my heart. And we have to be very careful that we don't just measure ourselves by everybody else. We don't just say, well, I think I've got all these qualities that must make me a Christian. There's only one thing that makes us a Christian, that is, as Jesus says with the children, little children, uh, whoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein, or to put that positively, if you receive the kingdom of God as a little child, that is with dependence, with a sense of utter helplessness of your own strength and spirituality and merit, a looking away from yourself and a looking to God, a looking to Christ, that's the way to enter into the kingdom. So he was near, it seemed, but he wasn't there. But in fact, we can see from this encounter how far from salvation he really was. Um, he, he asked a question, a very revealing question. Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Uh, of course, that opens up a whole can of worms <laughs> in his about his experience, but it, there is a context there that he lived in a religious climate where the, the theological teachers, the rabbis, the scribes, were debating all the time as to what further commandments should be done or how they should be achieved, what further things can be added to the law, into the Talmud, as it was called, the traditions, uh, to, for Israel to be even more pleasing to God and even more deserving of salvation and merit. That was the context. So he's, in a sense, he was saying, look, I've, I've kept, I've, I've followed the teaching. I've kept the commandments. I've done this, I've done that. But maybe as you are a distinguished and good rabbi, you might have insight as to some commandment that's been missed out, something that's been missing in what's been taught so there was that added element to his question. But of course the question really showed an ignorance of the law of God. He lacked a heart knowledge of what the law of God was about. And this is why when you look closely at the commandments that Jesus spells out there, he doesn't give the whole ten, but he he concentrates on the second table, as it's called, of the law, the commandments relating to our behavior to one another. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. But Jesus has left out one commandment, 
What's that? Thou shalt not covet. And actually he doesn't include it in the list because he has, he has what you might call an exocet missile to fire into the conscience of this man. He's going to put it in a different way to this man because he knows this man loves his money, he loves his prosperity, and maybe he loves his spiritual, apparent spiritual prosperity. And as the man comes out, up with the answer, Master, all these have I observed from my youth, Jesus responds, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Jesus could have just said, Thou shalt not covet, but he knew the way to get right to the heart of this man was to follow the implications of that commandment and say, just loose yourself from this particular idol that's gripping you, the idol of your wealth, the worship of your riches. We need to note that what Jesus says to this man here is personally specific to him. It's not an exhortation to everyone who wants to follow Christ, some sort of literalistic exhortation that anyone who wants to follow Christ must sell all his goods. That was the misunderstanding of the monastic movement that has been for many centuries in Christendom and still is there in a small way. That is a misunderstanding of how Jesus is being specific to this man and to his needs. Christ is here applying his own teaching at the end of Mark 9 when he says, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. He's looking at the particular part of this man's spiritual anatomy that is an offense and an obstacle to salvation. And it's his covetousness. It's an obstacle to him. It's something there that identifies him as in fact being a commandment breaker and a sinner. Let us remind ourselves that the Bible in fact has many rich believers. In the days of the Old Testament, Abraham and Job and David. In the days of the New Testament, Lydia with a church in her house, Philemon, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch as he goes back to Candace's court. What matters is not what we have or don't have, but whether or not we understand that what we do have, materially speaking, is a stewardship from God and that our hearts are not entwined with them. <coughs> this man lacked a heart knowledge of himself and how the law of God stood with him. And it's not enough to be sincere, is it? As J.C. Ryle has said, so long as we think we can keep the law of God, Christ profits us nothing. As the Apostle Paul, as we read in Romans chapter 10, uh, he started off as a Pharisee, and that was his mindset, that he thought just by establishing his own righteousness, just by going about trying to add some extra commands and follow out everything exactly as it was there in Torah and Talmud, that that would earn him 
salvation. But he was actually ignorant of God's righteousness. He was ignorant of his own sinfulness and his own inability to keep the law. And strangely enough, in Romans chapter 7, we realize that actually Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, had exactly the same problem as this young man. Because it was the commandment, thou shalt not covet, that actually convinced him of his inability to keep the law, of his failure to keep the law. The young man was ignorant of it. I wonder if you understand that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I wonder if you understand that the Ten Commandments are not there to give you and me a blueprint as to how to be saved. They're actually there to show us that we can't be saved through our own law-keeping. They're there to show us that it is in fact impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven in our own righteousness and strength. We might say in our own spiritual prosperity and richness. The commandment is there to show us what we are. Not to give us a way to haul ourselves up by our fingernails into heaven. This is how it's been greatly misunderstood down the centuries within Christendom. Even churches that have had the teaching of Romans 10 enshrined in their uh, formularies, in their creeds, have tended to forget it. And to just think, well, all we need to do is be good, keep the commandments, and God will accept us. That is a satanic lie. We are to be good, of course, but that is not the way to be saved, to come into heaven. This young man was ignorant of that. And then secondly, we notice he was actually ignorant of the gospel. He was ignorant of the law of God, and it seems his heart really hadn't grasped the gospel the good news, this other way of salvation, which, was, which is a real way, the way of faith in Christ. So when Jesus showed him the way, showed him what was required of this young man as part of his repentance and turning to God, he went away sad at that saying. He went away grieved. Why was that? Because he went away thinking that all God wanted to do was to take something from him, to take something from him that he loved very much. But actually Christ had everything to give him. There was treasure in heaven, as he says. And as Jesus tells us later in this passage, there was going to be fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. And in the world to come, eternal life as someone has put it in a more contemporary kind of illustration if this pill which he was offered were swallowed rather than chewed it would have been sweet to his inmost soul because he just thought that all God wanted to do was to hammer him in fact God had riches for him in Christ and this is not the case when we're confronted with a choice between our sin, the particular sin that we love, the darling sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We think that all God wants to do is to hammer us and hurt us when in fact he loves us as Jesus loved this young man. And he wants to bring us into something far, far better, into the knowledge of of himself as Lord and Saviour and Master and Friend. 
He was ignorant of the law of God. He was ignorant of the gospel. And actually, he was ignorant of the love of God. How interesting that here, in a case where we don't actually know whether or not he responded positively to the gospel in the end, certainly he didn't hear that we're told that Jesus loved him. This is one of the great proof texts for telling us that it is not wrong to say to a non-Christian that God loves you. Uh, Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians have a hesitation here, and we know why, because just to say God loves you with no content, with no explanation, of course, can be very misleading. But it is not wrong to assert the love of God for sinners because Jesus loved him. And I don't know what you call taking young children up in your arms and putting your hands on them and blessing them if that isn't love. He didn't understand that. He didn't get it. Uh, he, He maybe thought that love meant that he should be allowed to hang on to his sin. He didn't understand that. So for all his niceness, all his apparent goodness, he actually turned his back upon the love of God. It's possible, of course, to be like that, isn't it? Many nice people, many apparently good people, or maybe really good people from a certain level of operation, actually turn their back on the love of God, actually are disobedient to the gospel. And we must not be fooled, don't be fooled, don't imagine that mere niceness is the same as true Christianity. It is quite correct that a true Christian should not be nasty, but mere niceness and goodness and sincerity in and of themselves are not the same as following Christ. God loves all men. And yet multitudes of sinners turn their back upon his love. Yes, there's a special love that he has for his elect, of course. And in that sense, the Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians and all who think of these things are right to make these distinctions. And yet he loves all men. And he says to all men, turn ye, turn ye, why will you die? But it needs more than the knowledge of God's love for you to penetrate your hardness. It needs more than knowing that God loves you to bring you to repentance and turning from your sin and coming to Christ. Because this man, as an example, loved his money, which meant he loved himself. And every idol, everything we worship, which isn't God, is in fact loving ourselves. In Mark's Gospel, there's been another clear example of this. Uh, It's a long time since we were in Mark 6, but remember in Mark 6, there was the case of King Herod and John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had been put in prison for Herodias' sake because Herod had an immoral relationship with this woman. And John had faced Herod with this fact and said, it's not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not because of Herod's respect for John. 
But whatever Herod was prepared to do with John, he was prepared to listen to him. He was prepared to hear many things from him. He was not prepared to put away Herodias. This was his wealth. This was his arm that needed to be cut off, his hand that needed to be cut off, his eye that needed to be plucked out. And if you are not someone who's come to Christ, it's because there's an idol in your life. There's something there that's in the way of it. You can be sure of that. You can be sure that it's your sin that's keeping you from coming to Christ. And you can be sure that the cost, as it were, of coming to Christ is to turn your back on that sin and your sinfulness and to come to Christ as as the Son of God and trust in him alone. As Paul says in Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. He's the one. And if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you confess him with your mouth as your Lord and Savior, and if it's coming from your heart and you're trusting in him and you're following in him, him and turning your back on everything else in your heart, then that's truly to be saved. Now, something of this really did get hold of the disciples. They began to understand it, or aspects of it. As we conclude what we're looking at this morning, we just look at verses 23 to 27 briefly. Jesus spells out the lesson, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God, and then he explains himself. How hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Incidentally, you can trust in riches even if you don't have them. You can be poor but very covetous. So it's the trusting in riches. It's easier, of course, to trust in riches if you have them. That's the point Christ is making. But it doesn't mean to say if you don't have things that you can rely on, whether it's riches of personality or riches of, of, of respect and, uh, and prestige or whether it's literal money, it's hard not to trust in them. In fact, it's impossible in and of yourself. The disciples are beginning to get it. They, they say, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, you're right. With men, it is impossible. In fact, salvation is not just difficult, it's impossible. I always used to think uh, for a long time when I read this passage that Jesus was speaking here by way of what's called hyperbole. A hyperbole is an exaggeration for effect. You know, that person has dozens of cars they may they may have three cars but you know you 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 exaggerate for effect but Jesus Christ is not speaking with hyperbole here sometimes he does speak with hyperbole it's a legitimate figure of speech but not here it is impossible for men for people in and of themselves to be saved it's as, it's as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle And we don't need to think of the eye of the needle as some sort of gate in a wall. That's not what Jesus means. It's a camel. You think that's the biggest animal that many of his disciples would ever have seen, probably. 
how much of a camel can you get through the eye of a needle? And they did have sewing in Jesus' day. A few hairs, a few bristles. It's like saying today to, to people who've not seen camels, who've not been to the zoo, it's like putting an elephant through a letterbox. You can't do it. It's impossible. Because salvation is utterly and entirely down to God's miraculous working. Jesus explains that in John chapter 3, that except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He explains that there has to be a direct work of the Spirit in people's hearts. And here again we can say there is a huge ignorance in this young man that's that's really, really at the root of him. Of course, it's good that people keep the commandments as far as they can. It's good that they're decent, nice sort of people, but that's not enough. There has to be a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls to bring them to Christ. And when the Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesians of how they became Christians, he spells that out. He says, you, he says, has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins? A dead person cannot walk. A dead person has to be raised. He says, you, has he quickened? The deadness here is their course in trespasses and sins, their grip by Satan, they're gripped by the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the mind. But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The resurrection power of God is what makes salvation possible. Resurrection flowing from the death of Christ flowing from the shedding of his blood for sinners. And that then becomes a glorious possibility. With God, all things are possible. Let's remember that. As we think of our own salvation, if we're Christians, we thank God for that miracle that he's done in us, that he's given us the new birth, that he's given us the gift of faith, and he's enabled us to understand what the Bible is teaching and enable us to follow Christ truly. And as we think of a lost world, we pray that he might do that same thing in millions of men and women and boys and girls across the world and in our own communities. Amen.